0: Sticking around for the panel. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I've never seen Akira in the Akira in the theater, so it's pretty uh, pretty cool to actually see it in the theater. How many have you have any of you seen it in the theater when it came out? I know Jackson, Brian Winkler of Robot House. I know he saw it, and so it was a really cool experience. So thanks for coming out. Thanks for sticking around for the panel. And so uh, yeah, well, uh, I'll just introduce myself real quick. My name is Harold Story. I uh, run a show called Tunes, Tunes Podcast. We talk about anime, music, uh, all things OKC. And so these are some of the guys that have been on my show, future guests. Luke Atkinson in the house. It's exclusive for you. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, why don't we just go down the line here and you guys can say uh, where you're from and, uh, and uh, your name and all that good stuff.
1: Hey guys, I'm Brett Grimes. I'm with Robot House Creative. Yeah,
2: I'm uh, Adam Lanier, also with Robot House Creative, so we were uh, helping the tower put this thing on for uh, the month of animation, and uh, for the Projector Club movies on Wednesdays with the panels, we're, uh, we're the guys doing the posters.
3: Yeah, super cool. Is this, am I on? Yeah. Hey, uh, Luke Atkinson, I'm with Oklahoma Contemporary, uh, I spoke a little bit for Sunbeam, uh, an organization I represent, and uh, this was
0: my first time ever. Seeing the movie. So he's a, he's a good person to have on. So <laughs> we we'll get an uninhibited uh, <laughs>
4: uh, review from him. Hi, I'm Daniel Boekemper. I contribute to the Cinematropolis as well as World Literature Today. And I recently wrote about Acura and the perversion of progress as it appears in the film. That was a good piece.
0: Uh, yeah, it's one of those movies like whenever Stephen announced that he was going to start doing movies up here, uh, and he tapped me as like as a resource for the types, different types of animated movies or anime movies that he wanted to show. That was the first one I was like grilling him about. I was like, "Dude, we have to watch this!" Like, <laughs> so it's been a long time coming. It was really awesome to actually like uh, help nail nail down the uh, the rights and get the license to that. Shout out to Daniel, who's a big help for that. And uh, it was really exciting to be able to watch it in theaters. So that was really cool. But uh, you know, I guess just the first question I have is kind of just a, kind of a basic concept. But it's like, what is it about this movie that makes it so high on recall, like all this time later? Is it the storyline characters, just the dynamic relationships? What is it that sticks out that, you know, can bring all these people to a theater and watch it all this
1: time later? Uh, for me, this was really my first exposure to the genre that people would call cyberpunk. So just this kind of mashup of a dark future and um, you know, lots of wires and neon and motorcycles and everything's a little bit gritty and grim. It isn't like your typical polished sci-fi. And that hit me really hard. Probably, I think I first saw this maybe in eighth or ninth grade and it had a huge impact.
2: Yeah, um, as far as like impact and probably what keeps it kind of lasting is that it's phenomenal style, it's incredible um, art direction as well. Um, it kind of, what I always remember, so, you know, having seen of quite a fair bit amount of anime afterwards, this was probably my first actual movie that I was exposed to when I was a kid. Um, and I was like, what the hell is this? You know, this is the, most, the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Um, and it's, it's serious, but it's a cartoon, and it, that's, it was all sort of uh, a big scramble. Um, but stylistically, it's just so different, and it always has been in, in the genre of anime for me. Characters are rendered fairly, fairly humanistically. They don't have sort of a typical sort of anime look. Um, Otomo's sort of rendering style, you know, was always attractive to me, and it's not really a style you necessarily see um, copied a lot. Uh, Miyazaki has a very sort of humanist style, a normal sort of style that he puts to his characters, but it's still a little bit more cartoon maybe than Otomo's characters. So there's that going for it, which I think helps, you know, sort of make it a little bit more of a mainstream thing, but also just the, the sort of heavy narrative, and it's never, it's light in moments, but it never takes itself... Um, uh, to a place where it's anything other than just a film. You know, it's not, it's, it hap- it's a film that happens to be animated. You know, Brett and I were watching this and we sort of, early on we were like, oh man, like I forgot how much this sim, is very similar in pacing and lighting, especially at the beginning when you have so much city scenes to like Blade Runner. Um, and that sort of like cult classic status that it has regardless of being in animation.
3: No, I, I agree. I think coming into this, I wanted to be, I guess, kind of like completely unaware. So yeah. I wanted to kind of feel it out as I went to, to notice what kind of influences there were or what this was. And I think in the beginning, at first I was like, oh, sweet, this is going to be like like race, you know, got for some like like a Tron second. looking, <laughs> light streaks, but that it, it kept evolving into its own thing. And then, you know, the, the cyberpunk influences uh, were definitely there. But for me, being... Watching this for the very first time, it, it sticks out to me by how, I guess, unique it is, in that I can maybe see some jumping off points for things that, that happen in the future, or influences for other things, but this, to me, is so unique, and it's like, um, I mean, like you say, the the, the kind of mega structures for the buildings made me think Blade Runner, and uh, the cycles in the very beginning made me kind of think of like, like the light cycles in Tron, but but from there I don't know it really took a kind of a, a life of its own and and yeah I could see where it, it, it really sticks out with um, you know the characters the story the animation is is wonderful um, but even like uh, I think there's a lot of things that catch our eyes like like even the fashion uh, like Canada's jacket is, is is iconic there's a lot of I think iconic pieces in this that that jump out and like you say keep that kind of on the forefront of people's minds when they think about this movie and, and movies like it
4: yeah. And it's, I mean, it has its aesthetic is initially eye popping. I think the cyberpunk growing up loving things like Shadowrun. I, I mean, it definitely sticks in my head a little bit, uh, but it's also a heavily topical film. I mean, it there's a timelessness to it, but it's a film of Japan and it's a film that's of the post nuclear era in a response to that in tandem with a lot of its contemporaries like Blade Runner. Um, I would even go so far as to you know, incorporate into a movement like, uh, you know, Dark Star and uh, maybe even Alien. Um, and then its influence is still seen. Um, when I was watching it just now, I, I didn't think about it previously, but I thought of like Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men. Um, it seems to have a lot of, you know, uh, parallels to that film as well. Um, there's an intimacy, but then there's also this, this scale. Blade Runner does it pretty well too, but I think when you see those moments where it's like staring at the uh, hospital where the psychic children are. And then you think of the shots where you see the Tyrell Corporation and kind of with all its glory, it's, it's, it's almost identical, almost verbatim. Um, and not in a plagiaristic way, but but I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, but again, it's it's heavily topical. It's, it's criticisms. Um, you're always noticing new things too. There's so much going on um, it, just within the animation itself, even in this viewing, which is probably like my eighth or ninth viewing of the film, probably third within the last few weeks. <laughs> And, uh, it, you know, I, w- I was thinking of, you know, how brands are even criticized and advertisements in, in a similar vein to Blade Runner, but-, but also something more recently like Shape of Water, where you have this, you know, beautiful veneer, um, you know, with like the scene with the dogs and there's that, that dog food commercial or whatever it is. And then it's, a, you know, cut away abruptly to attack dogs. And, you know, beneath it, there's always this violence. There's this undercurrent of, of something else. And-, and that film just captures it so well. Um, especially for an animated film, you know, I, I, I would not be able to identify another animated film off the top of my head. I know there are others uh, that catch that that just that realism within it. Well, yeah, and I think
0: it's something to be said. Like I think Adam was the one that said it, but you know, it, you kind of have that caveat sometimes, and it's almost not necessarily a, a on purpose like negative connotation, but like an animated film, whereas. You know, Daniel, you, you, I, and Caleb, and a couple other people were talking about uh, film, like some of our favorite anime films. And it's just, you know, stylistically, this one is so different from what was out in the time, like in the United States. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But um, it's just crazy. It's almost like a culture shock, I'm sure, when this came out here. Because, like, you're so used to, like, the Disney animation. Like, that was, like, the big thing. And this was really, like, the big, like, first big, like, anime release over here in the United States. And so I, was pr- I think, you know, I imagine there's probably something of a culture shock with that. But even with, like, some of the storylines with, you know, the relationship between uh, Kaneda and um, Tetsuo, you know, you have that tumultuous relationship. There's also, there's obviously roots there. You know, they have a history. Um, you know, you kind of see that there's, you know, it's not like it's a copy, like, of anything. I think someone said it was, like, a nod to something else. But it's not a copy. It's more like an, like a, like a homage, almost. But there's always, like, that you know, we use the word trope a lot on my show and it's just like, because anime falls into those quite often, you know, you kind of see that relationship in other pieces and so I was going to kind of see what you guys thought, where else you see like the kind of dynamic relationship between you know, Tetsuo and uh, Canada like in other shows or something similar like that.
4: Oh, Sure. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with maybe the earliest piece of like transmedia, but I I was thinking of, like, the epic of Gilgamesh in a lot of ways. When I think of the relationship between... Um, I'll, I'll bring up something more modern, I promise. But, I mean, just, like, off the top of my head, the the relationship between Gilgamesh and Enkidu, whereas, you know, consider Tetsuo Anakidu. He's really a child that, that ultimately learns a little bit too much, is given too much power. I, I don't want to say too much agency, because I don't think agency is, is the right word or a bad thing. Uh, but, but he learns a little bit too much. He grows... Too powerful, too quick. His, you know, his mental, his his power, psychic powers grow beyond what his actual cognitive capacity is, um, and thus he he kind of loses control. Um, whereas Kaneda is more of just a he is a bit of a creature of his environment, but he's also a mentor. He's a he's a big brother um, in a lot of ways to Kaneda. So you can you know you think of other pieces of media like that. Something a little more modern. Um, you know, I could see like the picture of Dorian Gray. Um, you know, playing coastly, but maybe like. Anakin Skywalker and Obi Wan Kenobi might have it close, <laughs> um, not not quite the. It's like Anakin Skywalker and Obi Wan Kenobi, but also paired with like Tom and Jerry a little bit, um, because the nature of their combat isn't. You know, they're not really equals. I was watching recently, and and Harold and I were talking about um, that YouTube channel, uh, Lone One Eyed Wolf or something like that, and he does critiques of. Of primarily anime, but also a few other things, and he did one of Akira, but he also did one of what makes a fight scene interesting, and he looks at it in two aspects: the technical part of the fight, where people match one on, you know, one for one, and that tells a narrative in of itself, but also the emotional narrative. And uh, I don't think you see much of a technical, you know, in in the in the uh, engagements between uh, Tetsuo and Kaneda. It's almost entirely emotional. I mean, you know, Kaneda doesn't really have much of any. Actual physical advantage over Tetsuo, yet um, they're still combative in this in this emotional sense. Both because they're so close to one another, but also because you know they're uh, in a way they resent one another. They see a lot of things that they despise in themselves, and uh, I don't know. I think that resonates in several pieces of media. I do see it a lot in anime, but um, it's in a lot of other films elsewhere. I'm sure I can. Somebody else could bring up better than examples than I could, but
3: not me. <laughs> uh, not fair to follow that one, yeah. two. Um, no, I, I, I really appreciated. Um, I think how we learned about how the relationship was between Tetsu and Canada. Um, I feel like uh, in the beginning, I felt like Tetsu was kind of like the runt, trying to impress like the big brother or the the, the leader, you know, and and that kind of a uh, story that we see, not not too terribly often, but you know, we're familiar with. Uh, but then in the end, it, it seems to be, to me, uh, at, the, at the end scene in the playground, uh, where where Kanada gives him his toy back, uh, it reveals the relationship of, of rather, um, that friendship's always been there. And I don't know where, maybe this is me needing to rewatch the movie, but but maybe I, I don't know where that, that divide came. Like to me, it always felt like they were, after that scene, like they were equals. Um, and I'm not sure where that relationship pulled apart. But I, th- I thought that was an interesting development for a first-timer.
2: You know, you're absolutely right. I was kind of. Noticed. It's been a long time since I've seen it. It's actually probably my first time to see all the way through with this dub. I'm really familiar with the like 1989 dub with like kind of just played by the guy who played uh, Leonardo from the Ninja Turtles. Um, so that one's that one's a little closer to my heart. There's a lot of some corny lines in there, but it's it's good. Um, but you're right. You're absolutely right. As far as like, I was kind of paying attention to that too knowing kind of where it ends up and kind of how it begins with this sort of, you know, older brother, younger brother kind of dynamic, knowing that they both sort of grow up in this orphanage environment and were Kanada of sort of, at the beginning, sort of looked out for Tetsuo. Even when Tetsuo has his wreck, when he runs into Takashi, Kaneda is still looking for him. And as soon as he finds him, he immediately runs to him. And he's like, are you okay? Are you okay? You know, there's still this this looking out for my little brother, who's, you know, quote in quotes, that's in our motorcycle gang, extremely violent motorcycle gang, you know, and because we're only 15, and we kill people. Um, but, you know, that aside, you know, absolutely, you're, you know, I, my sort of comparison was the sort of Obi-Wan, Anakin, you know, parallel, which is, you know, the first pop culture thing I could draw, but also just narratively, this kind of cracked me up, um, having seen some of the the movies here at the Tower like we did last March, that um, Canada is kind of totally the Jack Burton of this movie. Like he doesn't, you know, and he's that's the character of Kurt Russell from Big Trouble in Little China. He's not the hero in any way. He doesn't really move the plot forward in any way. Um, K does so much more, like, around him. Tetsuo is way more powerful than him. He's just trying to keep everything, like, in control. He still wants to hit on the girl that he likes, and he still wants to get his friend back. That's, like, his entire motivation, and it's totally relatable. He's just a dude. He's just trying to, like, get his world back in order.
1: Yeah, and just watching it this time, uh, something I picked up on that I hadn't picked up on in previous viewings is just the relationship of the whole gang itself. You know, there's obviously that tie between Tetsuo and Kaneda, and I think everyone, you know, realizes that. That's kind of one of the main themes of the movie. But they all seem to care about each other in that same way. So you have, you know, them all looking out for each other at the beginning, but one by one they kind of get taken out, and then by the end, you know, you have Kai, and he's, like, desperately looking for for Kaneda, and he's so, you know, relieved when he finds him. So they're kind of the only family they have in this post-apocalyptic world.
3: Can we say, like, about the voice actors? Did anybody else catch, and maybe I'm wrong, uh, the white-run uh, shopkeeper in Skyrim? The barkeep, for sure, is the barkeep. What? Yeah, when you go back and listen to that dub. That's a deep cut for you.
0: <laughs> I Yeah,
3: immediately <laughs> flashing back to all of those, you know, overused voice you know, lines.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that can happen with, like, a lot of these shows. I love and it. A lot of it was put in motion because of Akira, but we'll get more into that in a second. One thing that I always like to entertain on the show—I uh, know we did it in the Cowboy Bebop episode. We've done it in a couple other things—is uh, the idea of, and this has been bounced around with this show, with this uh, movie for a long time, is uh, like a, a live-action adaptation, uh, whether that's a series or a movie. Uh, a lot of people think it wouldn't work. A lot of people don't want to see it. But just for uh you know, just for my sake, y'all, please humor me. Uh who do you think uh who would you cast, you know, in the film like this if it was an adaptation or if it was a show, or like who would you tap as like the director, what production company would you like to see? Things like that. Come on, humor me guys.
4: Because are you talking about is it still set in Japan or Is it? That is really important. Yeah.
1: Yeah, um I actually prefer something that's heavily adapted. Uh personally, I I think we already have an awesome movie about these kids in you were Japan. A fan of
2: the, like the Death Note adaptation. I
1: am a fan of the Death Note adaptation that Netflix did because I think we already have an awesome Death Note anime about Japanese kids. We have live action Japanese kid anime or movie that's based on the anime. So I was glad to see an adaptation that took it so far. So if there was an Akira movie, I would want it to be far removed from what we have because I don't really need to see that again. I don't think it could be improved upon by making it live action.
0: Sorry, okay.
1: yeah, <laughs> and yeah, I
0: guess I should throw this caveat in because you know a lot of uh, things that ended up in the film uh, it was like, very condensed because the manga series is very long. So, like things like the capsules play like a bigger role in the in the manga. So. You can consider that too if you just like an adaptation straight from the manga to a show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who would play the capsules? Yeah, yeah. Who would play the capsules? But yeah, just any any facet of it, any facet of the show.
1: Oh, you were done. <laughs> <laughs> you're just gonna pick the well, location. I, and you're I will done. say, I think the director of Thor Ragnarok has already been tapped to direct the Akira adaptation. So that's kind of a cool pull. I think he could make a dream dream casting
2: though. Ah, man, I don't know. Yeah, I'm pretty stumped on this one, too. As to your point, um, and to your point about Akira and its sort of specifically being a Japanese story in a post-nuclear world, I think I can't really separate those two. To me, that's a big part of Otomo's narrative in both the movie and the manga, and the fact that, you know, during wartime and for not test reasons, Japan's the only country that that's had an atomic bomb dropped on it twice,
4: and that just does something massively to the psyche of a country. Yeah, you can't argue that, you know, because if if you, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but if you place Acura in New York, uh, which I guess that's the city that they were considering of transplanting in it, um, you know, we there there is something that might resonate with American audiences. Um, I think the only thing you I can think of off the top of my head would be 9-11. But 9-11 isn't two atom bombs being dropped on a country. It simply isn't. Um, that's not to say it wasn't a cataclysmic, you know, revolutionary event, but it does not have the same resonance as, you know, Nagasaki and Hiroshima.
2: Yeah, and I have to think, like, for, for a Japanese audience, like, the state that Neo-Tokyo is presented in has to be very drastically different, you know, so we're talking about 88 release, I think, in Japan? Yeah, 82 yeah. for the manga. Yeah, and then continuing through, because the manga wasn't finished, you know, he didn't, he kind of, yeah. I'm sorry, what? Really? Okay, oh, when okay. it was finished, right, so he was still kind of I didn't kind of know what directions I want to go to, but i got to wrap up this movie for for production and before I'm even finished with the manga. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right in the sense that what, what I was thinking was when I was watching this is, like, you actually have a lot of police in the streets with guns, which isn't actually currently the case in Japan. Uh, it's kind of like England where they have to have, like, special you know, task force that come and, like, have guns and stuff. So you're having a Japanese audience watch this, and they're like, wow, this is, like, the future? Like, there's there's guns everywhere. Like, that's kind of screwed up. Like, so that's already, like, a little bit of an undertone that's kind of normal for us. That's another thing that's sort of being seen by an audience. And that's just a cultural difference that like, we're not really tapped into. And there's probably there's tons of that stuff that I have no idea that I can't pick up on at all. But that was one that kind of stood out for me a little. So that's why I think this is hard to adapt. As far as castings, man, I have no idea. Like, I have no idea. I can't even pick, like, faces to go with them. Because to me, like, I, I don't know. I have no idea. Unknowns.
1: I'm just,
3: I'm to- yeah. Let's go unknowns. Unknowns all the way. Man, I don't know if I have anything to add to that. I'm just thinking like the vibe of the Stranger Things kids, but a little more grown up. Maybe some sass like that. I don't know. Uh, but like they say, man, I agree. It's 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 such. It feels like there's such a um, cultural influence with the whole post nuclear uh, nuclear thing. I I don't know. I don't know if I can pull that away from that. It, that that really drove the story too for me. Uh, the first time, you know, that was easy for me to catch. So
5: I don't
4: know. And yeah, it. <sighs> The thing you have to think about when you're adapting a film, and I didn't even think about that with the, the you know, actually armed police, um, you know, comparing that contemporary Japan, that actually does, I think, make it a little bit, you know, if you were to transplant, if you had to transplant it to America or a, a specific city, it might be more apt to do so. Um, but in adaptation, you also have to think about, um, you know, correcting things in a lot of ways. So when Steven Spielberg adapted Jurassic Park, he acknowledged that in the novel, a lot of femininity is is lost. Akira isn't a perfect film. It has a lot, uh, it, well, not a lot. I shouldn't say that. I like it a lot, actually. But it does have quite a bit of problems in how it uh, treats women specifically and how they're handled. A lot of them don't have much agency. They consolidate two characters. Kyoko and um, K, are you know pretty much consolidated, whereas you do have several other masculine characters. Um, so I would hope that maybe that could be Rectified in an adaptation similar to what Spielberg did with Jurassic Park. I don't think Spielberg should direct an Acura uh, adaptation. If I were to think about somebody, I do think I see like Children of Men and I think it, it is pretty close. So I think maybe Alfonso Cuaron would, would make a really cool film. Um, if you were to adapt it, I do think maybe, um, I always mess up his last name, but uh, Dennis uh, or Denny Villeneuve, like Sicario and Arrival. Um, Blade that Runner. Yeah, Blade Runner twenty forty. Yeah, there we go. He's Possibly, dude. <laughs> that could be a really interesting adaptation. But to rectify the the one of the biggest problems I see with the film, which is its portrayal of the feminine, um, I I would almost, you know, I I want to ignore A Wrinkle in Time a little bit. But I think like Ava DuVernay would would be a very interesting and very enticing choice. And I mean, she's already getting her feet wet in the science fiction realm, so I don't think Akira would be too far of a stretch. Uh, never gonna happen because that would probably mean also Disney would be uh, handling the Ocura adaptation, which I don't see happening, but I don't know.
3: Did you say Taika Watiti is somebody that they Yeah for this one? Huh. I I loved Hunt for the Wilder people and What We Do in the Shadows and Thor Ragnarok, but that seems like New Zealand humor and, and this setting, I don't know.
0: I'll watch it. My work. Maybe <laughs> so we've kind of, you know, discussed um how big and monumental akira was for west uh western sorry for western audiences <laughs> and it was huge because uh it had a limited release and i think it was 89 came out the same week the simpsons premiered in america and like jackson said uh you know this guy wasn't even done writing the <laughs> manga yet and they're like dude we gotta get this movie going and so it saw a limited limited release in the United States, went on to gross millions worldwide. Um, that actually led to the 91 VHS release of, uh, of this film uh, through Manga Entertainment. Um, that's the production companies uh, founded specifically to uh, put out this movie in VHS form. Um, but the revenue from that actually um, gave them what they needed to co-produce the next major anime release in the United States, which, which was uh, Ghost in the Shell, and so I think that's pretty huge, and then they also went on to license a lot of the um, the other anime that we've watched since and have grown to love, Dragon Ball Z, like all the ones, like think of your Toonami block, that was all because of this release, this movie, that's how monumental this movie was for us getting anime over here, so it's insane, but you know, just with that thought in mind, um, you know, why do you think this broke through the, like the way it did? So monumentally here in the United States, uh, do you attribute it a lot to like more of like an adult animation, you know, coming out around the same time as The Simpsons, you know, because up to that point, it's like, oh, that's like a cartoon that's for kids, but The Simpsons effectively is, you know, broken that mold. Do you think it had anything to do with that, or is that you know kind of grasping straws? What do you guys think about that?
4: That's my turn. Again? Okay, um, that's really interesting because, and I think you mentioned this a lot on your podcast, Harold, that. Many of us grew up in the the era of tsunami. We were watching it. We were alone. the The film Akira is about kind of children without much much purpose or much. Uh, I don't know. I think of that scene like discipline, discipline, discipline. When they're hitting them over the head, <laughs> not to say they like discipline, but they don't. They're not a part of any kind of traditional familiar structure, um, other than the one they've created themselves. Um, kind of reminded me of myself uh, a little bit when I was in second grade, and I'd get home and watch Dragon Ball Z and eat like pizza flavored Pringles, and my parents wouldn't be home for like two hours. You you kind of are for a uh, for a moment you don't have uh, any kind of authority um, that's that's guiding you, so you're left to your own devices. What are those devices? Um, I also I didn't think about it until you mentioned the Simpsons, and I think um, Alexandra Bohannon in the uh, um, our Contempt Con episode mentioned, uh, brought up The Simpsons while we were talking about anime film. Uh, I don't know if, uh, I can't recall if Akira came up in our discussion, but we, uh, you know, it's weird because you have Tetsuo, who's this uh, child who's given kind of an apocalyptic power and he wields it, you know, destructively. And then you also have Homer Simpson, who's a man baby who's like playing with. You know, he's in a nuclear reactor. Obviously, he shouldn't be there, probably, but he's he's just kind of uh, left to his own devices like a child in a lot of ways, <laughs> and it's very precarious. So in a way, he kind of has the same power as Tetsuo, and I don't know, maybe there's a parallel there. But it, you know, it, for the same reason, I think The Simpsons broke through Akira does, too. It is, again, an animated film that's not for children. There's, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of serious subject matter. Um, there's a lot of political intrigue. Um, that you know, I think of maybe like Gundam Wing or something like that, that also has political intrigue to it. So again, it's right on that fine line. You have giant robot battles, but you also have, you know, a a social conflict that's going on. That's that's a little more intrinsic than what you know the what you see up right, which is a bunch of explosions and and uh, you know futuristic motorbikes show off. But
3: no, I I agree with all of that, and I feel like it's it's one of those situations where. Whenever a new art form or 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 film style or or whatever have you, it, it, whenever something like that is presented, and it's like so good, like like sets the bar, I think it it kind of it, it takes a, a whole bunch of new users and a new audience, and that, like you said, kind of got the ball rolling, and it was kind of like a perfect time too, like you say with the Simpsons. I think all of that put together with the quality of of Akira, it it, it yeah. I lost my. I, I I lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nailed it. Bye.
2: <laughs> yeah, I would. I would absolutely agree. I think um, to 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 reiterate both their points. On on one level, it is a technical feat that's just amazingly impressive. If you just look at the color palette, it has a huge palette comparative to other anime, and for other animated movies in general. I mean, not just even in the anime genre. Um, one of the things that's really kind of neat about it, um, from a technical perspective, you know, new anime. You have some interesting things going on with CG and stuff that they're doing. Some people like, some people don't like. Looking at you, Brett, um, with some of the CG you did. There's a tiny little bit of CG in but a majority of it is animated on ones, um, which is really interesting from an animation, for like a physical animation per- perspective, you know? So typically, uh, film is usually 24 frames per second. For typical animation scenes, you would, you would draw a frame Right, and it's on a cell, and you'd shoot that cell. It's like a piece of clear. It's like you know when you're in class and you draw with markers on the projector thing. It's clear, like acetate. It's transparency. Right, it's a transparent cell that you'd put over like a background painting. Right, so these beautiful background paintings, and the key animation is on these cells that are on top of the background painting. You take a picture of it, and that would last for two frames. So it'd be you know you'd get 12 frames every second, or 12 cells photographed every second of footage in a normal animation on twos. Um, Akira is almost entirely on ones. Ones are typically reserved for just action sequences, so that keeps like a really, really fluid look for this whole movie. That's really atypical and is really expensive. The budget for this movie is huge, um, even for you know anime at the time in Japan. This this was sort of like this was a seminal piece in its home country, you know. I think Toho was was Toho. I know Toho did this release because I saw the logo at the beginning, but I think they're also responsible for the production at home during when it's originally made. They were like, let's just let's just give Otomo a whole bunch of money because this is dope. And like you said, as far as popularity, and you said it's got awesome motorbikes in it. It's got an awesome futuristic city. It's it's production. It's adult, and it's cool.
1: It just has weird, some you know, some Cronenberg body horror at the end. So these little <laughs> sprinkled in. Yeah. yeah, and that's what I was going to bring up, is that it really, I think, ties into a lot of things thematically that were happening in science fiction in America at the time with RoboCop and The Fly, speaking of Cronenberg, um, and just any kind of movie with this, this body horror kind of happening. Also, RoboCop 2 has the weird eyeballs and brain thing in the jar, which always reminds me of Akira. Um, but, yeah, so it kind of, I think, played to an audience that was already expecting that kind of gross-out sci-fi horror, but maybe not to that extreme, which is another cool shock factor.
0: See you, Jackson. Uh, And I have to mention, uh, for the uh, robot house member not here, Brian Winkler, uh, he had a story that uh, was literally his only contribution, so I told him I would tell it that he saw it in the in 1990, I think, in Dallas, and uh, went with a friend of his, and his friend hated it. And he just thought it was, like, he thought it was the most amazing thing, because I think he had that deeper appreciation for, like, how fluid and how great this film does look. Because you could really tell, like, it. it there's never any point where it looks shaky or suspect. Everything is just, like, fluid, man. It looks so good. And it's funny, like, the parallel with um, things like that. I know people you know, uh, just growing up thinking of like The Simpsons, <laughs> like so many people I knew weren't allowed to watch The Simpsons as kids, just because it has like that adult theme. And I think so many of us saw Akira because <laughs> our parents were like, oh, it's just that anime stuff, they can watch it. I was like, no, no, we probably shouldn't have been watching that.
3: <laughs> There was a lot of pressure for me coming into this, but I had so many of my friends tell me, like, hey, I watched this movie and I was a kid and it made me throw up. It's <laughs> like, what have I gotten into? This sounds awesome. It sounds like Bike gangs. Just bike gangs. Right. <laughs> right. So so imagine, yeah, my my surprise when I'm watching people racing on the street I'm like, what? I don't see any there's a vomit inducing scenes. Come on.
0: It's like two different movies really. I mean, it starts out like you exactly like you said. I love that you said it in that exact way. You're like, "Oh, this is cool." There's like bikes and they're driving around and then by the end of the movie, uh, if we oh looked at you, you would have, have been like looking around like, "What? <laughs> like, did they like switch movies real quick or what's going on? Like, this is insane." That is so funny. I always like to open up uh when we do these panel discussions, see if anyone in the audience has any questions. You guys have any uh, questions, I'll come down here with the with the mic. How many of you have actually read the manga?
4: Yeah, just like parts, not in its entirety.
0: Yeah, I'm in, I'm on
4: the fourth one currently.
0: And you just so. got the box set, right? Uh,
2: yeah, I've got uh, the three trade paperbacks, Kondasha prints, and then and then I got
1: the the anniversary box set, but I haven't finished it. Nice. Brett, have you read any of it? I have not. I also got that box set, but I'm currently working my way through Gundam The Origin, oh. which is a 12-volume or hardback series pretty soon. Nice. Did you have a question? I haven't read it, and I had never seen it before, so I guess you started to bring up my question, which is, um, I know they probably compacted the story, but the second half for the last third of the movie, whatever, just completely goes off the rails, so to speak. <laughs> so, um, does that have an origin in the in the manga, or because I read a little bit about it ahead of time, I'd heard about it and I just never seen it. And they imply that in the film they kind of just went different with it because it almost seems like uh, one of those film pairings where uh, Rodriguez and Tarantino or whatever direct parts of the same film and it just goes in a completely different way. It seemed like heavy metal or beyond flux or something, where just anyway, I think you get my point.
2: yeah, some liquid television digs in there. Um, yeah, as far as. It is heavily condensed in the sense that like where that you have this sort of flip and you have this sort of coup d'etat happen and there's this sort of military overtaking and there's this entire revolution that's going on as a subplot that is heavily explored as well, there's one shot you see, of like a woman, and she's got some prayer beads, and they're painting Akira on the ground, and there's a big protest. She's a major character. She was actually a test subject. She was number 19. Like There's lots and lots of side plots to get explored, but one of the things I thought was kind of the most interesting, and as far as pacing of the film, um, as compared to the manga, um, there's a big point where Tetsubo is responsible for sort of destroying a big chunk of the city. That's like the middle. Of the of the manga, to where then the rest of it is sort of in set inside this sort of post apocalyptic Neo Tokyo, where you have like street gangs and people worshipping. There's actually the the boy Akira is actually much more of a character. He's not really like a background thing. He has dialogue. He interacts with Tetsuo, and he is sort of worshipped as a deity. And there there's sort of that is sort of the second you know. Numbers four, five, and six of the of the of the manga, to where he sort of sets up home base in the you know Olympic Center that they're building for the the Tokyo Games, the Neo Tokyo Games, and you know Tetsuo sort of plays nice with Akira while developing his own sort of worshiping. That's but so there's there's yeah there's a lot of that they sort of were just like well let's just kind of squeeze that into the last thirty minutes of the film.
0: Yeah, and I think we. It's hard. It's hard to do. There's a lot yeah. going on. I think we mentioned earlier. I think the capsules play a role. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like there's like the whole like don't ruin your brain like. He, yeah. He actually.
2: They're the the rival biker gang too. So the actual gang name of Canada and Co's gang is the capsules, right? And that's where we get like the pill on the back of his jacket, um, on the uh, the, the rival to him are the clowns, right? So so in the manga, Tetsuo takes over the clowns because he needs massive amounts of drugs to sort of keep his brain in check. So, and that's kind of a clever thing because he he corners a couple clown gang members and he's about to kill them. And they're like, wait a minute, we can
0: get you drugs. And he's like, cool, I'll be your boss now. And that kind of works for a while. Yeah, because in the movie it feels a little bit tacked on because you're like, oh, he just wanted to get drugs? Like, what? (laughs) And then especially in that scene whenever they're in the bar. I don't. I guess I didn't remember in the dub that they're like, "You look like a crackhead," like that. Crack, I was like, "What?" I was like, "I was glad I wasn't the only one that laughed because I like laughed out loud at that part." I was like, "That's ridiculous." <laughs> Anybody else have a question?
3: Thank you. Yes, the the fourth panelist. What's your name again?
0: Dan. Danny. Thanks.
3: Yeah, you you mentioned you brought up the uh, feminine in this film, and I was wondering uh, what you felt about the uh,
1: Kyoko character.
4: Yeah. So she's actually probably the 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 most powerful uh, feminine character. In fact, she basically takes over Kay temporarily. Um, she's really interesting. Um, she's the only, so they each kind of have their own psychic proficiency. Hers is clairvoyance, to my understanding, but then she can also um, go into other people's minds. I. She's compelling um, quite a bit. I, I thought, You know, it, it, it's it's weird because she's kind of removed. I think of that. I'm not too familiar with like the Marvel universe, but I think of what's that character? It's like the Observer or somebody who's like completely the Watch. There we go. Okay, thank you. Um, she's kind of removed. She's she's not. I don't. I want to say she has agency, and she does try to to stop Tetsuo um, through the vessel of K. Um, but I don't really think she's awarded that much. I think she is kind of in a way just to, to somewhat explain what's going on. It's it's a way to, to help facilitate the movement. I, I and I would I would entertain an argument against that, but I it's bizarre because I, I just think she's I don't know. It's one of those weird things where she's given a lot of dialogue. She explains what's happening. You know, it's the amoeba that has gone super saiyan basically. It's <laughs> um but it it's I don't know. I, I I want to say I, I like her because at least he awarded again some agency to to a feminine character, but I don't know to what end. I don't know if it's very meaningful. But then again, she's also the one who insists that they need to, you know, they need to save Canada regardless of you know what happens to them ultimately, and that's actually saying a lot. So thinking about it, um, I, I think she is positive. I think she might be one of the more um altruistic characters it's just and i hope maybe in the manga maybe you know it's 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 somewhat rectified there or um you know if somebody were to adapt the film ultimately maybe they would they would do a better job at that but um you know there there's so much potential with her character i just don't know if it's executed particularly well uh but i do like her overall she's one of my favorite characters in the film i just think her face is animated a little i don't know why but her if her face is animated a little weird it's like completely different than any other character i don't know why that is it just i don't know something about that always looked a little All bit Oh, those isn't.
0: kids creep me out
2: I yeah i just don't it. know
4: it's a, that was a little bit of
0: cg they put right, yeah, right. <laughs>
5: <laughs>
0: triggered now anybody else. anybody else
5: got a question uh i love remakes i, I i'm not going to lie i love remakes i love live action remakes just because why not and you know like it's like every 10 years hollywood gets a bug to do like an anime you know we had speed racer 10 years ago now and then last year we had ghost in the shell and uh black panther kind of paved the way they're like hey look we can do non-white comic book movies and make tons of money and i that's interesting about the the kita watiti being added i hadn't heard that yet i still heard jordan peele was attached which is weird but uh i'm and uh, one of you guys said Steven Spielberg shouldn't do this movie, and you guys all saw Ready Player One, right? With mm-hmm. the with Artemis as, in. it made me think. I was like, there's no real reason why. Crap, what's? I always think the main character's name is Akira, just because I haven't seen the movie in
4: so long. Kaneda and Tetsuo. No, 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 the uh,
5: can- Canada. Canada. Canada, Canada, Canada. Oh, Canada. Canada. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was like, I was like, man, there's really no reason why that character has to be a male if they do a remake. And I'm just like, I'm wondering what you guys think if with all the social justice warrioring and everything in comic books nowadays, would Akira be a good thing for them to do it just because it's so beloved? And it's not male-female specific, unless the manga more is. I haven't read the manga yet. What do you guys think?
3: So uh, the first thing that popped in my mind after you said that, I was thinking of Furiosa from Mad Max, like a sweet, badass character who can... Ride all those motorcycles she wants. That's my contribution. And we just watched
0: that not long ago, right? Yeah. Hosted by a, uh, Caleb Masters. Shout out to Caleb.
4: <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, you you do have to remember is, Atomo critiquing the masculine with Kaneda. I don't know if we're supposed to see. Yeah, I don't think we are at all. Actually, it's a joke. It's the butt of jokes most of the time. Kaneda's insistence on. You know, flirting or, or chasing tales, they put it in the in the film. The one important thing about, and I, I agree, I think adaptation is important because it's inevitable. You know, all of our media is, is intertextual at the end of the day. Whether or not it's still called Akira, you know, it's still adapted in some form. Koran's Children of Men shares a ton of aspects. Aronofsky's um, Black Swan it shares a, and Requiem for a Ge- Dream has a lot of parallels, direct references to Satoshi Kon, like... Uh, um, Perfect Blue, and and you know with Nolan with Paprika, uh, and and Inception, and so forth. As long as you enhance that experience, as long as you don't use it, and and I will say, I from what I know of Ghost in the Shell, I haven't seen not the the original film, but the the Scarlett Johansson one. I don't think I the criticism I've heard is that it didn't didn't quite hit, but maybe you know there's a counter argument to that that it didn't really make a, a more meaningful. You know, experience with that narrative. That's not to say it can't be done, Um, and so I think as long as you're looking to enhance that narrative, um, and whether or not you want to call it uh, like social justice warrioring or or whatever, I don't. I I mean, (laughs) which which isn't I don't think a bad thing necessarily, but 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 I get what you I get what you mean though, because you can you you run the risk of being dogmatic, Um, as long as you're enhancing the experience, not compromising. You know how people can enjoy it. Um, and allowing it to resonate further, but also resonate in a healthy and hopefully a progressive way, uh, then why not, you know? Yeah, I don't
2: have anything to add to that. I was gonna pretty much say the same thing. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you can make it, and it could be different as long as it's different with a reason, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I think uh, a lady bike gang is awesome. So that's a good reason to do it in general. And uh, I think you know both of those main characters could be female, and that'd be a really interesting take. Um, talking about Ghost in the Shell, my attention right. Uh, talking about Ghost in the Shell, that adaptation, I, I think that was an example of not pushing it far enough for me personally, and why I think it might have fallen flat for a lot of people. It looked like Ghost in the Shell, sounded like it, felt kind of like it. Uh, but it was just really flat, you know. There was, there was there was not a whole lot of heart or depth or artistry there really to it. Um, so I would have rather them do something like that, just push it in a totally different direction, switch up, you know, the ginger rolls, switch up the ethnic, ethnicities if they need to, which they kind of did. I don't want to spoil anything if you've seen it. Um, yeah.
0: Any other questions? Okay, a couple more. <laughs> I think be the last two, and then we need to wrap up pretty soon.
6: Um, when you think of adaptations, I think we've already had one pretty close, and that's the movie Chronicle. That's essentially, it's about yeah. teenagers getting superpowers and one of them going crazy with power. And that's that's pretty as close as we've gotten so far, I think. But what I was wanting to talk about is the uh, score. It's one of my favorite scores to any movie ever is in this one, just with the drums and the voices and just like weird sounds. And I've heard that the, uh, I don't know who the guy, who the composer was, but he put in a lot of noises that can't be heard by the human ear, but are in the mix that speakers can replicate. And uh, I don't know, I think that was really cool The how far this movie went in every single direction. Animation, sound, ideas, all of it. I, th- I think that's why it's a... Uh, it's a classic.
0: Should add had uh, Alexander on the panel with the to talk about the score. That's like her jam. What yeah, do you guys like think about a, that?
2: A really good point, and I, I meant to bring that up in some other answer or something, but that is something that immediately kind of struck me on this rewatch is that you have an incredibly futuristic cityscape, and you have an entirely almost completely sort of analog or a cappella um, sort of contrast in its soundscape you have traditional Japanese you know taiko drums and you have chanting it's, it's the most sort of earth earthly sort of opposite of what you're seeing as visuals there's a couple little moments I think when they're in the tunnel with the little hover bike things where you get some like electric guitar and I actually thought that kind of stood out okay. I was like oh okay that's right I kind of forgot there's a little bit of like some, some shredding in this um but to to where that would be sort of the typical anime thing it's like oh let's put in some really like crazy shredding guitar solo in this fight scene but no like it's let's let's ramp it up with some really really tense like chanting and some like some drums and like Johnny Greenwood and there will be blood or something just tenseness
4: from the soundtrack and that's that's incredible and that I did had no idea that they'd actually put in sounds that the human ear can't interpret or it's like Okay, um, I wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me because I think it does play itself into the point that Acura itself is transcendence. It's or he, I guess, is you know into the ineffable, and it would make sense that they incorporate that theme into the soundtrack. I wish I knew a little bit more about score, um, which you know, again, Alexander Bohan and our colleague is a, a little bit more familiar on this subject. But um, no, that's I. I think it plays into the theme quite well, knowing that. But that's awesome. Thank you for letting us know. I'm gonna look into that. It's another Simpsons parallel. The Subliminal
0: messages. <laughs> yeah, Danny Miage. Elfman to the the uh, <laughs> Quar- Yeah. <laughs> Luke, you got anything? Nah, man. No. Nah, uh, <laughs> You're good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brian's got a question. I think we're gonna wrap up with your question, Brian.
6: Oh yeah, no, I'm just here for the poster contest.
0: <laughs> you didn't have a question? No. <laughs> Do you want to give a brief shout out
3: to the uh, tsunami snacks that we mentioned earlier? Um, that's as vivid of a memory as like watching anime as a kid. Is eating a ham sandwich with some yeah. Cheetos, and my grandma always had uh, Coke in the glass bottles. Yeah, Little uh, Debbie's. Shout out to yeah. Grandma.
0: That skank, Little Star Debbie
3: Star Crunch, and the Good Crunch
2: oatmeal cream pies.
0: Well, <laughs> uh, we'll wrap up real quick, and then we'll do the giveaway after. But. Real quick, why don't you guys say, uh, you know, a plug where they can find you on social, uh, all that good
1: stuff. Yeah, you can find us at Robot House OKC on um, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And we just launched a store online. If you want to check out any of the prints we've been doing, it's robothouse.store. Yeah, we work at the
3: same place, so same same plugs. Um, so I don't know if you've been to Oklahoma Contemporary. It's a, a great arts and arts education facility. Uh We do a lot of fun things from free exhibitions to programs to uh, events, performances, classes, camps. Um, A lot of fun, a lot of great ways to get hooked up with us and uh, get involved in the community as well as experience some uh, different forms of art. Um, A lot of our mission revolves around inclusivity and diversity, so uh, a lot of cool stuff happening. And then, uh, yeah, tonight I'm repping Sunbeam uh, next week is next Wednesday, the 23rd, is uh, Mask of the Phantasm, and I know we're gonna be doing um, sort of a, a raffle donation kind of giveaway for that. Um, so please come and support Sunbeam. It's a great organization. Uh, if you wanna learn more, hit me up.
4: And again, I'm Daniel Beocamper. Uh I'm with the Cinematropolis, uh, hopefully your source for all things film, not really reviews, but, but more so uh, in-depth analysis I recently wrote on Acura. Um, you can find us at thecinematropolis.com or just thecinematropolis on uh, Twitter and Facebook. And uh, next week, I, Caleb, I believe, is on the panel, um, as well as, I think, uh, Christopher Schultz for, is he? Oh, he's Joshua Matt. Unruh. My bad. Forget that. Just Caleb. on uh, For The Mask of the Phantasm. Um, and also World Literature Today. I recently wrote on uh, Woman of the Ashes. I write mostly on translated um, I wish it wasn't translated. That'd be cool, but I'm not, you know, <laughs> monolingual. But I uh, or unilingual. But uh, I recently wrote on, wrote on "Women of the Ashes," the first in a uh, trip. Uh, excuse me, a trilogy um, of Africa. And then in July, um, it's mostly about nineteenth-century um, Congo during a uh, Portuguese um, occupation. And then the, look out for a uh, review of the Transparent City. Um, Again, an, another uh, piece of African literature that's very magically real, kind of reminiscent of like the late Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, should be out in June, I believe. Nice. Well, and if you haven't heard of my podcast, uh, again,
0: it's Tunes Tunes podcast on social. That's T U N E S slash T O O N S. We talk about anime music. bring people in from the community. You know, get to know what they do and why it is they they love the things that they love. Uh, We also launched a uh, Threadless site. So um, an artist that's actually been on my show uh, designed two different uh, shirts for Akira. And so you can get on there and check those out. That's tunes, tunes, T-U-N-E-S, T-O-O-N-S dot Threadless dot com. So you can get those there. And we'll be uh, doing a lot of collaborations for some of these screenings and some of our favorite shows uh, moving forward. And yeah, that's about it. So thanks for sticking around.